message to you. And because when we talk about doing life together, I think people have different ideas about what that looks like, you know, uh, what it means for each of us to be part of doing life with other people. Paul says something here, and I want to take this and unpack it just briefly. He says, starting in verse 1, Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one, has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. I'll stop there. Now he says, there's, there's three things I want to take you through that are basics to doing life together. And the first thing he says is, he starts off with, tells us that doing life starts with Jesus. Then he says that doing life requires a new way of thinking. Then he says that doing life together brings us overflow. So let's, let's look at those three points he made. He says, Brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now stop there a second. So he, what he says is, now, you know, we picked up in the middle of this book at the 12th chapter. But Paul spent 11 chapters talking about what Jesus did and what it means and how relevant it is to us, how it answers every single issue in our lives in the most profound way. And so Paul was a man whose life was interrupted by meeting Jesus, totally changed the course of his life. And in, uh, scholars say in the ancient world or in, 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 in the progression of Christianity, there's probably nobody else outside of Jesus who had a greater impact on the church and the history of the world than the conversion of this man, Paul. Because he was a complete enemy of the church. He was an enemy of Jesus and the church. And he heard the gospel over and over and over. And at a certain point, Jesus came and revealed himself to this man personally and directly and called him to follow him and then commissioned him to become one of his leaders. And Paul spent the rest of his life until he was killed for his faith. He was martyred in Rome to, in, in the city to which he was writing. He wasn't there at this point. But Paul says, in view, in light of God's mercy. In other words, he's kind of summarizing everything he just said before, in the 11 chapters before this. And he's saying everything starts with Jesus. What Jesus did 
changed history forever. There's never been anything like it. There's never going to be anything like it afterwards. That when Christ came into the world and what he did on the cross, it broke life open in a way that people had only dreamed about. And he says, if you're going to do, if you're going to do life together, the life that you are invited into is his life. That we're invited into the life of Jesus. We're not just invited into a little better life. You know, we're, like I say, around the margins of our lives, it gets a little improved and tightens the thing up here or there. Sort of like a spiritual facelift. You know, you get a facelift, doesn't matter. A few years go by, your faith is, face is still going to go south again. <laughs> right? And if you get another facelift and another and another, pretty, pretty soon it looks like your face is a balloon with eyes drawn on it, you know. It's not human anymore. It's some sort of weird mannequin. We can't resist the power of the brokenness of this world except in Jesus. And so Paul had experienced it. And here's what C.S. Lewis said. He said, the one thing Christianity can't be is moderately important. Either it's untrue, in which case it's of no importance at all, or it's true, in which case it demands your whole life. Do you get that? Either Jesus is who he said he was and he's true or he's untrue. And if he's untrue, then we should just ignore him completely. But if what the gospel says and these people who tell their stories over and over and over to us and that we hear are true, then it, then it calls for our whole life, not just a little part of it. A peace. And doing life together starts with Jesus. And Paul uses this play on words, and he's, he talks about the sacrifice of Jesus for 11 chapters and everything that that did. Then he comes and he says, okay, if you want to learn how to do life together, you need to offer your body as a sacrifice. But not the way that Jesus did, because what Jesus did for us is the, the only sacrifice that needs to be made. That what Jesus did is he took in his suffering death all the power of evil and sin and God's judgment. He took it all, all the wrath of God, all the wrath of Satan, all the wrath of people, and he took it and bore it, and he died so that its power could be broken over anyone who would call out to him, anyone who would look to him. And so he was a sacrifice, but he was the only sacrifice that ever has to be made now. What he's calling us to is not to do anything to add to what he's done. It's to imitate what he did in the sense that we become living sacrifices. Living sacrifices, meaning our lives... Our day in, day out life together becomes a sacrifice to God. See, in the ancient world, they thought of pleasing God as something you do in a ritual. You take an animal to an altar in, in some holy place, and to appease the gods, you sacrifice this animal on your behalf. And then hopefully that appeases the gods. And you kill the animal, you put it on an altar, it's like a barbecue pit, and you burn it, 
and you're taking something that's important to you and you're giving it to the God saying, I'm loyal to you. Would you be good to me because you have power and I don't and I'm small in this world? Well, that was not what Paul was talking about. He's saying, now that Jesus has given his life to you and you put your trust in him and his life is beginning to come into you in ever-increasing measures, keep offering your life to him as a living sacrifice, the way you live in your family, the way you work. And he's going to look in particular here, the way you relate to other believers. He's saying that there is something that we can do that reflects what Jesus did for us. It's nothing like it in the sense of making us right with God or doing anything other than we're just hoping to imitate him in this amazing way where we're not locked into a ritual or we're not locked into a building, but pleasing God becomes something we do with every dimension of our lives and and every part of our lives. That our lives are spiritual, even in the most earthy aspects of them. And so Paul's saying, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is a spiritual worship. And what he says too is, next is, don't be conformed. And he uses a, a word picture. It's like someone would take clay and shape it and mold it into something. Some picture, some image. And he says that the world we live in is shaping us. It's, an, it's, it's exerting this influence on our, our lives, our souls, our character. Whatever community we choose to be a part of, that community will shape us. And years ago, I, I forget who, who, whose quote I'm quoting, but they said, as important as the individual choices you make in terms of shaping your character is who you eat your meals with. Because the people, his point is, the people you spend the most time with are going, are going to be the people that shape your character. They're going to be the people that shape your perspective on life and how you live your life. And, you know, as Americans, we tend to think my choices, you know, make, they're the most important thing, and they certainly are important. But as we've seen the last couple of weeks, God made us for community. And we're going to be in some community, and that community is going to shape us. And the question we have to ask is what community we're going to choose to let our lives be shaped by. And Paul is saying here, that this world you live in is going to conform you to its will. It is inevitable. You, we've all seen that, haven't we? How many times have you gone along with groups of people and doing stupid things that you later regretted just because you were with them and you are hanging out with them and you are a part of them? Think of it. It could have just been one person. I can look back in my life. I won't right now because it would be too embarrassing to tell you the number of times where I stood there, people started doing something and I stood there and I thought, do I really want to do this? And then, just like a sheep, (laughs) just move forward into it. We've all been there, haven't we? Because I chose to be part of a community. I was shaped by that community. That's God's will. What Jesus has done is, and this is what he's saying to these, these people in Rome, is 
You have to come into a new way of thinking. He says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, the transformation of our minds begins with what we do with our bodies. Now, some people see it's the other way around. I don't think Paul's mistaken here. When we surrender our whole being to Jesus, not just our heart, so to speak, some little part, sub-part of us, as important as our heart is, I mean our whole body. If we say, God, every part of me, I give to you. Your mind comes with that. And what starts happening is there's a transformation. But Paul's saying this transformation needs to be really deep. Now, the, the Rome... In Rome, it was a very diverse city. It was the capital of the Roman Empire. So there were people from every part of the Roman Empire that lived there. Just like you go to Washington, D.C., people who want power move to Washington, D.C. I have a a friend who works in a consulting firm there, and he tells me, we we talk on a regular basis, probably every other week, he tells me all the struggles he has with trying to be a Christian in that atmosphere. And he says, John, it's like this huge rat race. And people are working and competing, and it's like everybody is out for power. And Rome was like that in many respects. Rome was the center of the world. And when the gospel came to Rome, when it began to be proclaimed in Rome, and probably we don't know exactly how that happened, except that somehow... People made their way to Rome and shared the gospel there, and, and, and the church began to grow. And so the church was full of people from every socioeconomic, ethnic, uh, political level that there was in the city. Now, that made it an interesting church, and uh, churches. They met in house churches. They met in, in smaller gatherings, like 20, 30, 40, 50 people. Some people's homes could have been bigger. You know, we're seeing in Rome... Uh, Buildings on earth that were, that were little church buildings. But for the most part, people met in homes. And in those homes, you had people who were slaves. You had slave owners. You had middle class people. You had family members. You had kids. All different ethnic groups. And they all had their own identities. But when they met Jesus, God began to do a work in them and change their identities and change their loyalties. And this is the challenge, though. Paul is saying to them, he says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, or think soberly. So four times he says, you guys have to learn to think differently than you've been taught to think. On every level and every dimension, but in particular, what he's going to get to is he's talking about their... Their call to do life together. That Jesus had called them to himself, and then he called them to a people. And at that point, they were people who met in small groups. They weren't people that met in massive gatherings like we have today. I mean, there's a, I've told you before, there's a church in Korea that has a million people in it. One church. And I have a friend who went there, and their building, it holds 50,000 people. And he says... They have the biggest bathrooms that you've ever seen in your life. And he said, it's so, they're so efficient. All these people come in and they worship for a couple hours and then they leave and thousands more come in. And it goes on all day. 
50,000 people just move in and move out and worship. The early church had thousands and thousands of people who believed, but they met in homes and small groups. But the problem was, when you got all these people who were of different ethnic backgrounds and, and educational backgrounds and different sort of positions in life and ages and genders, you had a, a, a real occasion for all kinds of sparks to fly. And Paul is saying when you come together, you have to realize you're going to have to embrace a new identity. Because Jesus gave his life for you and you've entered into him, you've also entered into his body, his people. Because God isn't trying to get thousands of separate people to heaven together. He's, he's calling a bride together, a people. You can't read the Bible and see anywhere where it describes believers except rarely in an individual sense. It's always talking to us as a community. Even the book of Romans is written to, look what Paul says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, uh, to the to all in Rome who are loved by God, called to be saints. He's, he's calling people together. Now, they had particular challenges with embracing that and thinking differently. Because the groups that, that you identify with, you know, they, they, they demand a kind of loyalty from you, right? You're, you're being part of them, offers you something, and requires something of you. And Paul is saying this broken world system, it reflects something of what God wanted, but it's broken. And so I'm, I'm creating a church to be in the middle of that that's part of that world system, but it's distinct from it. And, that, and that's held together by these small communities of people who now, because they've met Jesus, are beginning to see themselves differently. They're beginning to understand that God wants something different of them. And that's challenging. And it, there were people in Rome who had money, and they had position, they had power. And Paul might have been spoke, speaking to them when he said, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Now, see, I can think more highly of myself, but I could also think the wrong way by just thinking less of other people. I don't have to be a person that has a lot of power and prestige or anything. I could have been an ordinary person, but I could look at a person who's wealthy and rich and look down at them. Because maybe, you know, there's aspects of their life that, that don't reflect as much of the image of Jesus as they could. And that would become a barrier in this thing that God's trying to create, this community that does life together. Now, we can talk, we'll get into that a little bit more next week. He, he says... It all, this doing life together starts with Jesus, but it requires another way of thinking, in particular about doing life together, that we have to be willing to do life together, especially in small groups. Especially in groups where we see each other face to face. Right now, you're mostly looking at whoever's up on the stage, which it was the worship team before, it was Rick, now it's me. And you're shoulder to shoulder. And there's, there's clearly a precedent for that, that God's people stand like an army. But we're also called to be a family. 
So we're also called to see each other face to face. And if you think of the next thing he shows us is he says, this body has functions. And then he says this amazing thing. It's just matter of fact. He says, we all have different gifts according to the grace given us. Now, a lot of times we tend to think, well, I was given grace. It's just to be born again. But God in his grace, what he gave us in Jesus, we will unpack it for eternity. It's like a gift inside a gift inside a gift inside a gift. And every time you open the gift up, there's another gift inside that has some other implication. And so you think he just pulled your bacon out of the fire. And you're grateful for that. But he gave you grace. And he says, I want you to feel significant. How many people in Rome, a lot of people in the world, like people in Rome, wouldn't have much opportunity to feel very significant or very special or very loved or very purposeful. Paul right here was saying, when you came to Jesus, he made you significant, whether you feel it or not. And he gave you grace so you could actually demonstrate how significant you are. And he said, just matter-of-factly, we have different gifts, prophesying, serving, Teaching, encouraging, giving, leading, showing mercy. And that God, in in other letters, Paul says that God's the one that decides the kinds of gifts that he gives. Imagine. Imagine in the church in Rome, you're a 20-year-old slave girl. You meet Jesus. And Jesus gives you spiritual gifts of teaching. Now, I know some of you believe that women can't teach in the church, but what if God happened to do that? That's what Peter said, that the Spirit's going to be poured out on men and women and young and old and slave and free. And that the Spirit is going to be poured out on all flesh and that the body is going to have these unique gifts and that slaves might become leaders. It was inconceivable in the South for anyone to believe that a a black man or woman could be a leader. Yet, profoundly gifted leaders came out of the African-American community. In every community, whatever we think about American exceptionalism, the, the world's full of people that God has made exceptional. And the church was supposed to be this people that showed God touching the lives of people and bringing out of them what no one could ever have imagined that they could have been or become. So we get pigeonholed. We get cast and molded and shaped. And Jesus comes along and he just puts his loving hands around this little mold we've been put into and he just just gently crushes it without crushing us. And then he just wipes it all off and someone comes out of it that he, that, in whom he's put his grace and suddenly we look like nothing we could have ever imagined or the people around us could have imagined. That's what Jesus is doing. And in our wildest imaginations, this, this grace he's given us, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface In Paul's letters, over and over and over, here's what he would say. 
And you have to think about this in terms of whoever you think you are and whatever station in life that you think you've been put. You may think there's, a, there's, there's not just a glass ceiling over me, John. There's a titanium steel ceiling over me. And my head is firmly against it. And I'm sore from banging my head against it. Well, the, we were singing a song earlier that just so reminded me when one of the things that you see when you read scripture is when people met God all the way through the Bible, you know what they saw? They saw someone sitting on a throne, which is a picture of power and authority. And they were all familiar with people sitting on thrones. But they saw someone sitting on a throne above every throne, above every power. And now, when the gospel, they realize, I know who sits on that throne. It's the one who went to the cross and was buried and rose. And he's the one who is giving me grace to go through this titanium ceiling. And it may be a titanium ceiling you've put there. It may be a titanium ceiling someone else put there. But what this says is, and he says it so matter-of-factly, you have been given gifts of grace. And these words are tied together to the grace of God that we get in Jesus. And what he's saying is when we do life together, we experience overflow. The overflow of the cross, of the grace of God that's poured out in Jesus. Paul spent his life trying to find terms that would capture a little of what God blessed him to see that he had given us in Jesus. That when we believe in Jesus, we have, he he would use a term like a, a glorious inheritance. And he prayed that we could see the glorious inheritance that we have been given so that we could draw from it for our lives. That it comes to us from Jesus. And he says, when we do life together, that we hear the word of God. You know what prophecy is? The gift of prophecy, it's where God brings something to someone's mind about a particular group of people or a person, about what he wants them to know, or or maybe he wants them to experience. It's this spontaneous thing that happens. And it's it's a word that just comes, and when you hear it, God speaks, and there's some grace that comes with it, that when you respond to it, there's something that God does in your life. The kingdom breaks in, the kingdom of God breaks into your life. Now, he goes on and he says that when we experience Jesus by doing life together, we experience his word. We experience his humble, loving service. We experience his wisdom through teaching. We experience his encouragement. We experience his generosity, his leadership. His comfort and understanding. That Jesus himself was not just a historical figure. Jesus is among his people. And that he gives his people gifts of grace. As they offer their bodies to him. He uses them and releases a measure of his grace. A measure of it. That containers of grace come through us to be given to others. To give to one another. And and then when that happens, we begin to see the dynamic that we saw in the Gospels. Wherever people were around Jesus, 
They just changed. Boom. They grew. The community changed. People who were out of community came back into community. People who were dead came alive. People who were mean became kind. That that's what grace gifts does when we do life together. And so Paul's saying, doing life together requires us to offer our bodies. He, this is play on words. He says, offer your bodies to God and renew your minds. Change your way of thinking. In particular, change your way of thinking towards believers and become part of that body. You see how he goes, he goes from body to body, mind to mind. And, but he's challenging us in a very simple way to do life together. And he says if we do life together, there's overflow. And there's overflow that changes us. And the overflow eventually, like Rick prayed for, will change people outside if we let it. If we keep offering our life to God and we keep experiencing his life, because that's what happens. Jesus gave his life. With that, the gospel invites us to take some of that life and experience it. When we respond by giving our lives to him as living sacrifices, we experience grace, and then we get drawn into a community of grace. And if we keep offering our bodies and offering all we are to one another, overflow starts happening. Overflow starts happening. Now, uh, Brandon, come on up. I want to close. The, the picture, gosh, there's lots in this little passage. The picture, though, that came to my mind was real simple. Jesus gave his life, and it was like an Old Testament sacrifice. And in, and in the Old Testament, there was a story once where Israel was, uh, they were unfaithful to God. And because of that, they had all kinds of trouble. Because God said, if you're unfaithful to me, I'm going to withdraw my blessing from you, and then you're going to have trouble. But I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to keep sending prophets to you to tell you how good I am and invite you to turn back to me and, and to surrender your lives to me again. And so there was one of these situations, and God sent Elijah, and all the people were worshiping this God called Baal. And Elijah said, listen... You know, stop being of two minds because you're, you're all Jews and you know your heritage. You know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is your God. But you, you're, you're trying to have it both ways. You're trying to, to, to serve the God of fertility so he'll bless your farms and your families and your livestock. But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is the only God, says don't serve those gods. They're false gods. But you're, you're kind of between caught between them. He says, let's, let's do a test. And he said, you guys take, an, take a, a, a bull and sacrifice it, and I'll take a bull and sacrifice it, and then we'll pray to God, and whoever's the true God will answer by fire. Now, this is a test, right? This is like, this is dr as dramatic as it gets. They made their sacrifice, they put it on top of the wood, and then they prayed, and they screamed, and they cut themselves, and and, it's, and they did it for hours, right? And so at a certain point, Elijah starts mocking them. And in the Hebrew, it says, he said, 
Where is your God? Is he busy? Is he in the outhouse? That's what he said, literally. In other words, is he taking a dump? That's how we would say it in my house. That's in the Hebrew. I'm serious. It isn't always translated that way because sometimes the translators, they have qualms about being that, you know, sort of earthy. A colloquial. So Elijah mocks them. Then he goes, okay, watch. He takes the wood. He puts it on the altar, on the stone. He takes some stones first. They have a beautiful, you know, they have this whole thing laid out. He just takes some rocks, puts them together, makes a rough altar. He puts wood on it. Then he puts, he kills the animal, puts it on there, puts some more wood. Then he says, nah, that's not enough. Take some water. Now, this is a drought, mind you. Water is really precious. He says, I want you to pour all this water on it. Just keep soaking. Soak the animal, soak the wood. And so there's water. There's a trench around the, the, his little altar. And it's just full of water. It's muddy. And then, you know, in a, in a barren desert land during a, a, a drought, it takes a lot of water to get mud. And he goes, okay. And he just prays a short prayer. And the fire of God falls, consumes the sacrifice, licks up the water, and all the people fall on their faces. The Lord is God. The Lord is God. All right. And it, it didn't go, I won't tell you the rest of the story, but it didn't very, go very well for the prophets of Baal from, from then on. And people got encouraged by that. And here's what, in a sense, Paul's saying here. When we offer ourselves as living sacrifices to do life together, the fire always falls. The Spirit always comes. What do we have? I mean, let me tell you something. Community is good on a bowling team. Community can be good as a family. But that is not the church. Work can be a wonderful community. I've worked in places before where I hung out with people before work, during work, after work, on weekends. We were tight. But it's something different when Jesus is in the middle and there are spiritual gifts happening. And we can look at the church sometimes and go, why would I want to be a part of anything like that? Especially a small group. Ah, right? Done that. If we offer our bodies to God, is living sacrifices. And we do life together, the fire will come. The fire will come. God will be present among us. Uh, I was talking to Ron before church. I just said hi to him, Ron McGow. And uh, he said, you know, I went to that thing Wednesday night, the, the life group thing that, that Steve and Mary lead. And he doesn't go to a home group in our church. And he goes, I gotta tell you what happened. He goes, you know, I've had this real problem with my back, and I can't, I can't for, for days I haven't been able to sleep. At that group that night, I said, Could you guys pray for me? They prayed for me. He says, I've slept every night since like a log. See, when when we do life together, it's a living to, to do life together it requires a living sacrifice. It's tough to do it together. If grace doesn't come, we're going to get sick of each other real quick. A lot of you aren't in small groups, so I know you've experienced that already. But we have to be willing to go, I am going to live my life as a living sacrifice because Jesus gave his life for me. 
And the promise is, if I do life with others for the good of others, that the fire will fall. The fire will fall. So I want to just invite the Lord. I don't know what the Lord might want to do today. I have one little idea. But I think one of the things he wants to do with some of you is he wants to put something of a measure of his grace in you to stir it up again that you would say, I want that. I want to do life with other people 